0: Hello, and welcome to Chills, a podcast where we talk about the paranormal, true crime, and our own personal paranormal stories. I'm your host, Nina Cardona.
1: And I'm Preston Forrest. We're back. We apologize for not releasing any new episodes for the past two months. We've had a lot going on, but today we're back with a new episode. If you have any personal paranormal stories you would like featured on our podcast, email us at chillspodcastnp at gmail.com. Don't forget to purchase your Chills merch on our online store, chillspodcastnp.store. This link for the store and our email will be in the description below.
0: So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Chills. So this week, I don't have a story to tell. Luckily, Preston does, so there will be an episode today. I'm going to be transparent with y'all. Preston did mention that we have had a lot going on, one of those things being my grandma passing away. Honestly, it has been hard trying to get back into the swing of things. Putting in the effort to research does feel like a lot for me to do right now. However, I do have a super short paranormal encounter that occurred to me and Preston that I would like to share so this happened around two weeks ago was it maybe now three weeks ago
1: i think so like maybe even a month
0: <laughs> so this happened around three weeks ago we went over to my parents house because we were picking up some packages since we recently moved in together anyways my parents went to pick up some food so that we could have dinner together as we arrived at the house my mom sent me a message saying that her and my dad were still at the restaurant picking up the food But she would be home shortly i was about to go upstairs to see if my brother was in his room when all of a sudden i heard footsteps coming from upstairs not from his room but from what used to be my room and the gym area which is on the opposite side of the house then it sounds like a bunch of shuffling and items being moved across the floor so i figured my brother was working out i didn't text him because i didn't want his workout to be cut short so i decided to just wait Plus that meant I got to spend more time with my dogs, Thor and Loki. About 30 minutes passed by and my mom sent me another text saying that the restaurant took longer than expected, but that they are on their way home now. I was in the kitchen sitting down on a stool, just waiting for my brother to finish his workout. I could still hear him working out upstairs, so this is when I decided I will text him just to let him know that I am home. As I pull out my phone, the door that leads to the garage opens, and guess who walks in? my brother. I was so confused at this point. I asked him how long he's been outside, thinking maybe I missed him when he finished working out. That's when he told me that he had been out there all evening working on his vehicle. So I asked him, you weren't upstairs working out just a while ago? He just responds with, no, I was outside all evening. So I'm convinced that my house is 100% haunted. Since I have moved, nothing has happened to me at my apartment. There is no doubt that I am sensitive to the paranormal, which is why I experience these things, but there is just a lot more activity at my parents' house.
1: Sounds like fit ghosts. Fake? Fit. You're haunted by bro (laughs) Bro ghosts.
0: So yeah, my house is definitely 100% haunted. So now we move on to Preston's
1: story. In 1942, America was in the midst of a war. That's the year
0: you were born. No,
1: it's not. No. No one knew yet how World War II would turn out, and America was worried that Japanese warships would launch an all-out attack on the California coast. Military historian and author Carol V. Glynn described it like this. There were known to be Japanese submarines operating off the coast. There had been an attack on an oil refinery down near Santa Monica, near Los Angeles. There was great fear that there would be more attacks. In order to protect the coastline from an attack, the U.S. Navy decided to commission a fleet of about 12 blimps that would patrol the skies and report any warships or submarines that were quickly approaching. One of the strongest blimps to be in the sky was undoubtedly the L-8 blimp. This blimp was equipped with two 325-pound Mark 17 depth bombs and a machine gun with 300 rounds of ammunition. Its primary use was to sink anything that threatened the California coastline. However, during one of its patrols, in August of 1942, the L-8 Blimp would mysteriously crash down in the streets of Daly City, California, with its two-man crew missing. On Sunday morning, August 16, 1942, the L-8 Blimp was being prepared for takeoff. The pilots responsible for the patrol that day were 27-year-old Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and 34-year-old Ensign Charles Ellis Adams.
0: 27, 34—that's us.
1: <laughs> not even. <laughs> Both pilots were Navy veterans. I am
0: 27, though. No, yeah. You say you? Yeah.
1: yeah, you are. <laughs> but I'm not 34. I'm 25. No. Both pilots were You're Navy veterans were Navy veterans, married, and had perfect service records. A third man, aviation machinist Riley Hill, was set to join two other men, but was carted off the ship after the crew had decided there was too much moisture in the air and flying with a three-man crew would become dangerous. The original flight plan was set to have the L-8 take off from Treasure Island in the San Francisco Bay, fly over the Golden Gate Bridge, then head to the Farallon Islands, 25 miles off the coast. From the islands, the L-8 would continue north to Point Reyes, then head south to Montara Beach before heading back to Treasure Island. The patrol was set to only take four hours and expected back at the base by 10.30 a.m. fleet of 12 blimps came to be called Airship Patrol Squadron 32. It was the first LTA unit to be purchased by the Navy after the attack on Pearl Harbor nine months earlier. LTA in this instance stands for lighter than air. The L8, after being purchased, was shipped to Moffat Field to be assembled and then commissioned in March of 1942. L8, also called Love 8, was a 150 foot long blimp just like the one Goodyear flies over today's sporting events. Held in the air by 123,000 cubic feet of helium, the L8 traveled at 43 knots or about 49 miles per hour. This type of blimp had a reputation of being one of the best in the skies. The L-8 had about 1,090 flights before Cody and Adams' flight. Every one of those flights had gone smoothly and the ship never had any issues. The blimp was inspected four days before the two men were set to take off and had been in perfect working order. Finally, at 6.03 a.m., the L-8 lifted off from Treasure Island with Cody at the controls. Winds were light at four knots or four miles per hour, and even though it was slightly cloudy, visibility was good at three to five miles. Cody even said he could see the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge in the distance when they took off. The mission of L-8 was to patrol for enemy ships within a 50 mile radius of San Francisco. The blimp flew over the Golden Gate Bridge and then headed southwest toward the Farallon Islands at 7.38 a.m. An hour and a half into the patrol, The crew radioed their position as four miles east of the Farallones. Four minutes later, a second message was sent. Investigating suspicious oil slick, stand by. An oil slick could indicate an enemy ship lurking below the water. So at 742 AM, the L8 decided to drop two Mark IV float lights, that's a smoke producing flare shaped like an aerial bomb, and began searching the area. When another ship named Albert Gallatin spotted the L-8 smoke flares, its crew sounded the general alarm and manned its guns. Sailors from a nearby fishing boat named Daisy Gray worried that the blimp was about to drop a bomb on an enemy sub so they pulled in their nets. But nothing happened. No bombs were dropped. Instead, the L-8 circled the area for more than an hour. The blimp was so close to the fishing boat that the fishermen could make out the two men in the gondola. Though L8's identification had been removed from its outer envelope, it was still painted on the control cabin. Besides, there was no mistaking a blimp of this type. As the Daisy Gray and Albert Gallatin's crews watched above, the blimp circled at 200 to 300 feet. At one point, it descended to about 30 feet above the water. Then shortly after 9am, the L8 dropped weight, ascended, and flew back towards San Francisco. Since Blimps regularly patrolled the California coast, nobody thought the L8's movements seemed unusual. But that was the last time that Cody and Adams were ever seen or heard from. The L8 broadcast its oil slick message at 7.42. After that, Wing Control tried to re-establish radio contact with no luck. Headquarters wasn't told of the Blimp's radio silence until 8:20 a.m., but it wasn't unusual for blimps to lose contact during a patrol. Even then, Cody and Adams had more than enough fuel to return to base. When the L-8 still hadn't responded by 8.50 a.m., two Vought OS-2U King's Fisher float were sent to search for the blimp. Other aircraft in the area were also alerted to be on the lookout. The next identification of the L-8 whereabouts came at 10.49, when a Pan American Clipper pilot reported seeing the blimp over the Golden Gate Bridge. He spotted nothing wrong with the ship, which appeared to be under control and heading back to base. At 11, one of the King's Fisher float planes reported seeing the L-8 three miles west of Salada Beach, rising through the clouds at 2,000 feet. A few minutes later, the blimp began to descend, disappearing into the clouds. Nothing indicated that the L-8 was not in controlled flight, but 2,000 feet was close to the blimp's pressure height. The altitude where its valves would automatically open and vent helium to prevent its gas cells from bursting. Normally the crewmen would have avoided surpassing pressure height but for some reason they had ignored this restriction. Next to sight the L-8 was an Army P-38 pilot who spotted the blimp near Mile Rock. He thought nothing was wrong and assumed the blimp was headed to Treasure Island. A few minutes later Richard Quam An off-duty seaman heading for a day at the beach was driving along the coastal highway between San Mateo and San Francisco when he spotted the L.A. in the distance and noted that the blimp was bent in the middle. Quam stopped to snap a photograph and his film would soon be confiscated by the authorities. At about 11.15 a.m., five hours after L.A. left Treasure Island, the blimp approached the shore at Ocean Beach in San Francisco about a mile south of Fort Funston. A civilian noticed the blimp hanging 50 feet offshore. Its motors were completely silent, LA's bag bagway was visibly sagging, and it moved broadside to the wind, only 50 feet above the water. The blimp crashed down briefly on the beach, then flew further inland until its gondola hit the side of a hill, crashing the starboard engine with dirt and leaves and bending its propellers. The crash also knocked one of the onboard bombs loose, which rolled downhill before coming to a stop. Suddenly free of 325 pounds, LA then flew up again, cleared the hill, and disappeared from sight. Golfers at San Francisco's exclusive Olympic Club stopped to watch the blimp fly overhead. One club member reported having seen a parachute descend from the LA while the blimp was still over the water, and he wasn't the only one to see the crew. 17-year-old C.E. Taylor told the San Francisco Call Bulletin, I put my binoculars on it and I could see figures inside the cabin. Now, thousands of people were outside watching the blimp flow inland. Members of the Daly City Fire Department, who were burning brush on a nearby hill, chased after the blimp. Then police got involved and chased after the blimp as well. L.A. then descended towards Daly City, a suburb two blocks south of San Francisco's county line, hitting the roofs of the nearby homes. Ethel Appleton heard the blimp scrape across her rooftop and not knowing what it was, grabbed her eight-year-old daughter, concerned for their safety. When Richard L. Johnston, who was washing his car in front of his house, noticed the blimp crashing down, he rushed to protect his mother. At 11.30 a.m., the L8 landed in the middle of the 400 block of Bellevue Avenue. You couldn't have lifted it down any easier than it dropped on Bellevue said Deputy Marshal Sean Wood of Daly City's Fire Department. The blimp's cabin crashed into a utility pole in front of the Johnston home, breaking off a piece of the aircraft. The strength of the collision swung the blimp's tail into electrical wires, sending sparks to the ground. Somehow L8's fuel didn't ignite, but the blimp was punctured. The airship crashed to the ground tail first slowly deflating on Johnson's newly cleaned car. One of the first people to get to the blimp was William Morris, a volunteer fireman who lived next door to Johnston. It was a miracle she didn't catch fire when she struck those telephone wires, Morris said. Unfortunately, the L-8 dented the hood of Morris's 1928 Dodge and broke its headlight. Morris.
0: Does insurance cover that?
1: I don't know. This the forties.
0: So do you get like blimp insurance? Let me ask my mom. An
1: aviation accident. <laughs> A blimp ran into my car.
0: <laughs> Let me call my mom really quickly. Okay. We'll, we'll have her on we'll put her on speaker. Tell her we're live.
1: <laughs> when Morris looked inside the cabin, he was surprised to see the door was already open and nobody was inside. Another Daly City fireman named Thomas O'Brien also ran upon the blimp and saw that the cabin was empty. One thing he thought was weird was that the door to the cabin was open and the microphone for the loudspeaker system used to communicate with surface ships was dangling outside the doorway. Firemen soon surrounded the blimp, cutting it up in an effort to free the crew they thought were trapped inside. They saw no sign of either Cody or Adams. As a precaution, authorities set up a perimeter around the crash site. Later that day, 40 men from NAS Moffett Field And another 50 from the army were sent out to locate the missing bomb that had fallen off. They found it around 3 p.m., but unfortunately, Cody and Adams were still missing. To this day, two naval officers vanished from one of the most populated areas between San Francisco and the Farallon Islands. The blimp was being tracked by ships, planes, and people on the ground. What happened to the crew is a mystery. A hat belonging to one of the crewmen was discovered resting on the flight controls, and L.A.'s radio was in perfect shape. An inspection revealed that all three of L.A.'s parachutes were still on board, along with its life raft. However, two of the five smoke bombs were missing, but those were later accounted for because the crew had used them to mark the oil slick they saw earlier. A briefcase containing classified material was found behind the pilot's seat. L-8's engines were also in perfect working order, the ignition switches were on, and the Blimp's instruments and flight controls operated like normal, with four hours of gas remaining in the fuel tanks. Basically, there was nothing wrong with the L-8, except that it crashed with the missing crew. Two of the three life jackets carried on board were missing, but it was cr- required that all crewmen wear life jackets while patrolling over the water. It's not surprising that they would disappear along with the men. The only thing slightly off was that the blimp's batteries were dead and part of its fuel supply had been dumped. A blimp wouldn't dump fuel unless it needed to increase altitude in a hurry. Since the L-8 didn't seem to have that need, it wasn't clear why the fuel had been lost and the engines idled. The U.S. Navy immediately launched a search for the missing pilots. San Mateo County patrolmen spent the night searching the area where the L-8 had first crashed ashore. For three days, Navy ships and planes assisted by the Coast Guard searched the Pacific, but despite calm seas and good visibility, there was no sign of Cody and Adams. The Navy notified the men's wives that they had officially been listed as missing. When asked whether the blimp could have been attacked by an enemy ship, a Navy spokesman said, that's very remote. Moffat's Field's commanding officer, Commander Donald M. Mackey, said he was at a complete loss to explain what had happened and a second spokesman explained, Nothing the Navy knows now has given a satisfactory explanation of what happened. Two days later, the Navy convened a board of investigation under Commander Francis Connell. The seven-day inquiry took testimony from a civilian and a naval personnel and eventually established that no fire, no submersion, no misconduct, and no missile struck the L-8. Witnesses from the Daisy Gray fish boat and the Gallatin testified that during the time they were watching the blimp, its crew was aboard invisible. The engines were running and they saw no one fall from the cabin. An unfortunate note on the Gallatin, it was sunk in January 1944 by a Japanese submarine operating in the same waters where the L-8 had been patrolling before it crashed. Despite 35 witnesses, the inquiry could find no answers to the basic questions. Why did Cody and Adams stop broadcasting if their radio was working? What caused two men to leave their airship mid-flight? And what happened between the time they saw the oil slick at 7:42 a.m. and the point where the L-8 came crashing at Ocean Beach around 11:15 a.m.? Whatever caused the crew to go missing probably occurred between their last radio broadcast and when the Pan Am crewmen spotted the blimp above normal height at 10:20 a.m. The Navy's Board of Inquiry concluded. Careful analysis of the evidence indicates no reason for voluntary abandonment of the airship. The board therefore believes that abandonment was involuntary. The L-8 was quickly repaired and turned into a training vessel. When World War II concluded, the Navy returned the blimp to the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, which refurbished its cabin. The blimp actually became the famous Goodyear blimp, that same one that traveled around the nation and can be seen televised during sports events. The blimp was in commission from 1969 until its retirement in 1982. In 2003, Goodyear donated the cabin to the Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida, where it was restored. It's now on display in the same configuration and L-8 markings it had in August 1942. Unfortunately, a year after the incident, Cody and Adams were legally declared dead, and the Navy closed the case as a 100% cause unknown incident.
0: Maybe they just jumped off?
1: That's what people think, that they fell out.
0: Oh, fell out. That's yeah. a good one.
1: Or that they just disappeared.
0: How but do it's they weird just disappear?
1: It's weird that so many people saw the blimp and saw them inside of it, and then all of a sudden it just crashes into the city and they're missing.
0: Yeah, I don't know. And that concludes this week's episode of Chills. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Join us on our next episode for True Crime. We'll see you next week.